Support for This Might Be Helpful is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped Performance Package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 8 million men and their 16 million bowls worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping by entering the code ROSIN at manscaped.com. Now, I remember viscerally the first time I attempted to shave my balls. I skipped the YouTube tutorials, I stole my dad's electric razor, sorry dad, and immediately caused what I considered in that moment to be irreparable damage. For years after, even the notion of putting an electric razor near my family jewels elicited palpable fear, much to my partner's disappointment. That was until my Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 arrived, and boy, howdy, is this a game changer. Inside this package, you will find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Bowl Deodorant, the Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. This is the future of male grooming, and I dare say the greatest bowl trimmer ever. And I can say that because I do not fear it when I pick it up. It feels quite safe and sturdy and gentle and loving in my hands and has an ergonomic shape that just provides a little TLC to those TLBs, tiny little balls. So, boys out there, if it's time to take care of yourself, go to manscaped.com and get 20% off plus free shipping when you enter the code ROSIN at checkout. I wish your balls the best. Hello, this is Cameron, and welcome back to another episode of This Might Be Helpful, and I sincerely hope that it is. I am very confident that today's episode will be helpful because I'm joined by Dr. John DiMartini. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Because as a polymath, multi-passionate, multi-potentialite, I know that words and labels are difficult to ascribe to yourself, but we seem to have a need for them nonetheless. I'm a, a guy who loves to research, write, travel, and teach. I've been teaching for over 50 years, and I do a lot of researching and writing every single day of my life. And I like to share anything to do with helping people maximize their awareness and potential, <clears throat> do something extraordinary with their life, and live an inspired life, amazing life. And I full-time travel around the world doing that. And I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. That's really beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I um, I was really inspired to come across your work because it was just such a clear and resonant example of um, someone who has used curiosity and resonance as your gateway of expansion and this beautiful kind of specialized generalization where you're you're diverse in these interests and the development of those interests and you see the network effect of all of that through this really beautiful holistic worldview that is intrinsically empowering because it kind of guides us back to this innate capacity and potential that many people may need to discover for the first time if not rediscover well i think that <clears throat> The magnificence lies within all of us. And there's a hidden order to our apparent chaos. And if we take the time to look beyond our apparent chaos and see this, 
it awakens a magnificent journey where you can see life on the way, not in the way. <clears throat> and you can have a lot to be grateful for in journal and also contribute massively and serve in a sustainable fair exchange manner, which is economically also rewarding <clears throat> and definitely inspired. So I think that, I mean, I love helping people do that. That's my, my thing. And I love what you just said about being able to see beyond the apparent chaos to this greater order, because I've been toying with, with this idea myself that if I am perceiving chaos in my life, that it's quite possible that that perception of chaos is really just a example of limited perception and limited awareness of these overarching, uh, cycles and orders that, um, that my life is acting in accordance with. Exactly. Claude Shannon and a couple guys that did information theory in his study of thermodynamics, which is a study of order and disorder, <clears throat> showed that order, well, let me start with disorder. Disorder was missing information. So if you're, let me give you an example. If you are meeting somebody and you are drawn impulsively towards them with an infatuation, you are conscious of the upsides, but unconscious of the downsides. And if you're resentful to somebody and having an instinct to withdraw from them, you're conscious of the downsides and unconscious of the upsides. Either one of them initiate an amygdala response, a survival response to avoid predator and seek prey. Each of them also create the autonomic reaction in our physiology of either seeking with a parasympathetic response or avoiding with a sympathetic response. That initiates an epigenetic factor and tags methylates or acetylates, depending on the acetylates and methylates, depending on the side of the autonomics, changes the transcriptions of proteins, which changes enzymes and structural proteins, which then affects physiology and creates symptomatology that's compensatory to the misperception. <clears throat> and so the physiology is giving us feedback to let us know we're not seeing what's actually there in completion. We're not mindful. We're mindless. We're seeing something missing. That missingness, that unconsciousness, that ignorance, that blindness is creating symptomatology to help us see the other side. The epigenetics is actually doing the exact opposite. If you're in sympathetic and you oxidize from sympathetic, it creates a methylation, which is a reducer. And if you're parasympathetic and reducing in chemistry, it creates an acetylation, which is an oxidizer. It's a homeostatic mechanism in order for us to give ourselves the awareness of seeing both sides simultaneously, being mindful and being present. So our physiology and our intuition and psychology, because our intuition is whispering too, when we're infatuated, we're thinking too good to be true, watch out. And if we're, if we're resentful, there's got to be a reason for this, got to be a purpose behind this. <clears throat> so we are being, in our physiology and psychology, even our sociology, if we get puffed up and look down on people, we attract events to criticize us, to humble us, to stop the looking down on people and look across at people. And if we're down, we get supported to try to lift us up. So nature is 
is doing what it can within us and around us to help us have homeostasis and authenticity to maximize our awareness potential. Therefore, if we really ask quality questions, which allow us to see the side we're ignoring and become mindful and at the same time authentic, at the same time in a state where we're having equanimity within ourselves and equity between ourselves and others, we have sustainable fair exchange, which maximizes our potential economically and business-wise and socially and relationship-wise and spiritually. So we are being guided, but we don't always see it. And the reason is because we've subordinated to some moral hypocrisy about how life's supposed to be an educated injunction uh, instead of a deeply understanding of the magnificence of the universe. And there's a hidden order, and that hidden order is hidden only because we're unconscious of it, but it's there, and it's revealing itself through the confirmation of love and wisdom, which are tears of inspiration that are letting us know when we're authentic. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. Um, so symptomatology as a reflection in the body or a manifestation of what we are not cognizant of in our awareness. And so the body takes on that lesson as a way to guide us towards what we are not seeing through our obstructed perception. And exactly. by learning and, and allowing and releasing some of these obstructions to perceptions, such as the uh, ascribing of, of some kind of valency or value to these external events by even releasing the need to determine whether someone is better or worse, whether we are higher or lower, whether something is good or bad, just through that alone, we soften some of these perceptive gateways so that the body doesn't need to hold on to so many of these lessons and we can actually be consciously aware of them instead. Exactly. Well, <clears throat> we know in neurophysiology, neurochemistry, that the subcortical amygdala assigns valency to sensory reception from all of our previously associated subconsciously stored experiences that have never been balanced. So those associations are compounding the receptivity of what we're experiencing and assigning distorted views, subjectively biased views as a survival mechanism in order for us to have an acceleration towards running towards prey and avoiding predator. But in actuality, none of that's real. You know, we think we want to avoid predator and seek prey, but maximum growth and development occurs at the border of those two. If you get prey without predator, you get you get gluttony and fatness and you lose your fitness. If we get a predator without prey, we get emaciated and starve and we lose our fitness. But if we put the two together, support and challenge, prey and predator, the pairs of opposites, all compromise opposites together simultaneously and synchronously, we get maximum fitness. So we know that maximum growth and development occurs at the border of all pairs of opposites. It's the old uh, yin-yang integration, Taoist, middle path, Buddha, enlightened state, whatever you want to call it, you know, but it, it's a, our body is doing it. It's, it's the major constructed. I've been studying the body and physiology and lecturing and neurology in those fields for many, many years, for 45 years. And the more you probe into it, the more you see the absolute magnificence of the design or the evolution, if you want to call it that way, of the body and how it's adapted and how resilient it is and how amazing it is to help us maximize our potential in life. And we we go around and we compare our lives to fantasies <clears throat> about how it's supposed to be instead of how it is. Nietzsche said, beware of the ought to 
and take a look at how it is. <laughs> and that ought to is so frequently driven by these conformist ways of, of operating. And when we have those, I ought to, I need to, I should be, I got to, this externally motivated kind of fear-driven conformity that compares us to those around us you know, so there's already an aspect of conformity, but still it wants us to be better because we have this, um, you know, this kind of ancient tribalistic egoic way of figuring out where our status is in relation to those that we know. And this is, I mean, it's just these, these constant mind games and you can see it in, you know, maybe for take, take the ego perspective, these egos that have yet to be fully developed and the need to marry oneself to their opinions in order to be right but it's not an actual effort towards rightness of thinking it's an i'm right and they're wrong because of that yes yeah well the amygdala the amygdala wants to avoid shame and seek pride it wants to avoid phobia and seek philia it wants to avoid predator and seek prey that's its nature for survival because it's a, it identifies itself by its mortal nature, and it doesn't want to have extinction. But we have something that transcends that. You know, the, the Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, said there's the phenomenal world of the senses, which is the reality of the senses, which is mainly for survival and Darwinian kind of models. And then there's something that transcends the nominal world that sees beyond that, beyond the senses, and is able to see what our senses don't normally see. There's, a, there's about 180 different biases that the senses are trapped in that most people don't realize. Even empiricism and science doesn't see these things sometimes and gets caught in it. But when we see beyond that and ask the quality questions, we are able to see both sides simultaneously. And there's a confirmation or the gamma synchronicity in the brain that confirms it. And we actually have this aha, this eureka moment, a tear to let us know we're now seeing mindfully what's there because we sometimes judge things. And it's been shown for centuries. I mean, we can go back to biblical, pre-biblical, historical states. And it's always said that we only resent things on the outside that represent parts of us on the inside. We only judge them for what we've done ourselves. And we were only wanting to avoid them because they're reminding us of what we we're wanting to avoid in ourselves and dissociate from when we're ashamed of that and we want to go towards a pride because our amygdala is addiction. And the same thing on the infatuation side. We're we're too humble to admit what we see in them, but the truth is we see what we see in them, we have, but we're too humble to see it. And so really the truth is that we're all reflections. As Chopin says, it's all reflections of us. And maximum potential is reached when we have pure world, the umana unama mundi, as, as Plato would call it, where we realize that we're all that solar system, all the subatomics, the astronomics, all the people, all the animals, we're all that. Nothing's missing in us. Om tat sat, nothing's missing as it is. So I'm a firm believer in knowing how to ask the questions to reveal to ourselves, past our ignorance to see that whatever we perceive in the world around us that we judge is a reflection of what we have inside us. We own it, nothing's missing. Every time we disown it and we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us, we have a void, an emptiness, and we have no fulfillment. And the moment we reflect and discover it, we honor all the people around us and it levels us into equanimity, and we're now into a state where we can be equitable with other people, where we have sustainable fair exchange, 
where we then have great relationships. We have transactions in business. We have fair exchange. People want to continue to do business with us. We know how to manage money because we're we're not wobbling with emotions and getting greedy or fearful. And we are now able to be inspired by what we're doing because when we live by our highest values, where we're most objective and most balanced and most resilient and most expanded, we do extraordinary things. We have that capacity 24 hours a day, but we get caught in the moral traps about how it's supposed to be, should be, ought to be, got to be, must be, instead of actually the way it is. And the magnificence of the way it is is far greater than any fantasies we'll ever impose on it. And this, this, uh, you know, almost limbo of, of attention where people may feel trapped in how things could have been, would have been, should have been. And then that's projecting onto how things could be, would be, should be uh, inhibiting our ability to perceive what is now and make more direct contact with reality as opposed to a contact that's constantly mediated by these would have been, should have been, could have been. And, you know, because our, our entire experience of reality is really our experience of our relationship to what emerges in reality. And when we can energetically, you know, begin to alter consciously our relationship to reality and reach that more, I'm saying neutral energetic territory only because that is the, you know, to me, this a really fertile place, you know, when you reach that place of maybe it's not the conviction of no or the determination of yes, it's, it's maybe it's allowing it's, it's openness. It's the suspension of disbelief and the recognition that there are beliefs currently that we're holding consciously and unconsciously that are filtering in the stimuli and information of reality in a way that might not be serving us. Well, ultimately, it's serving us in the sense of it's waking us up to our illusion. <laughs> but in our immediate assumptions about what we want, it seems to be distracting from it because we're addicted to sometimes fantasies about who we are and what we want. I always say the magnificence of what we want is far greater than those fantasies. And depression is a comparison of our current reality to the addiction to those fantasies. You know, if we're, we keep comparing our life to a fantasy, we won't appreciate our life. That's what many people live. But I, I'm a... I'm a firm believer that we have inside us everything. I, I went through a dictionary 38 years ago now, more, almost 39, um, an Oxford English dictionary. When I noticed two things, I noticed that whenever I was emphasizing something to somebody, really emphasizing it, I was like, I was talking to myself. I noticed that. And then I also noticed that whatever I was judging on them, I was going, I was within a short second, I was thinking, I've done that too. So instead of waiting for somebody to push my buttons, I thought I'd preempt it with a preemptive strike. And I went into the dictionary and I just said, I'm going to not wait for people to push my buttons and live telonomically through hindsight and trial and error. Why not live with foresight by looking deeper into all the possible traits human beings can have that's in language that we could ever label? And I went through the Oxford Dictionary and I found 4,628 different individual behavioral traits. <clears throat> I know Gordon Alport did that years earlier, and, and he found 4,000, so the dictionary must have grown. And um, I went through each one, and I underlined it, and then I thought of who is it that I know in my reality that has expressed that trait or that action or that inaction to the, to the highest degree. So I thought, okay, if they're cruel, and who is the most cruel person? If they're you know demeaning, who's the most demeaning? If they're arrogant, who's the most arrogant kind of thing? And I went and wrote the initial of those people. 
And then I looked in my life and I said, all right, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same behavior. Uh, and where did you do it? When did you do it? Who did you do it to? And who perceives you that way? And I kept answering that until I would get a tear of gratitude for the realization that whatever I saw in them was in me to the degree that I saw it. And I did that one by one through all these traits. It's a long neurotic expo exposure. And the benefit of that was um, I was more poised and present when I met people because I realized my first impression was just revealing to me the things that I may not have been loving and appreciating because I'm only want to fix something in other people that represents a part of me that I'm not loving. <clears throat> and so I noticed that my reactions to people became less reactive. So I think, well, okay, that was a productive use of hours of work. And then I realized, let me see, take my students through that. So I, I've been doing the, the breakthrough experience now for 35 years almost. I've taken, you know, 100,000 people through it. And and I've taken them to do the same thing. And, and there's nothing you will ever experience in the world around you that's not a reflection of your projection. It's that simple. So when you finally get that, you realize that, you're, you're captain of your ship. You're master of your destiny. It's right here. And we, what we do is we create on false attribution biases. We falsely attribute us having the power to give pain or pleasure to somebody else. And we then give, you know, shame or pride to ourselves, or false attribution biases on others. And we give infatuation, resentment and philias and phobias to others. And we dissociate the self and other paradox and we the break the primordial boundary between self and other, which stops us from experiencing the hidden order. But once we realize it's all a reflection of us, um, wow. And that transcends the entire moral code. As Montaigne, as he traveled the world, he tried to find a universal moral code, and nothing ever ascended. Because in some place, at some time, everything that was good was also bad somewhere else. You know, It's like pro-life, pro-abortion, pro-guns, anti-guns, and all that stuff. So... When you finally transcend that and realize instead of having the external world having to govern you with these moral constraints and my hypocrisies, you end up governing yourself because of wisdom to know that that's what maximizes the sustainable fair exchange with human beings, maximizes your potential and fulfillment in life. So you're not driven from the external you know, constraints. You're driven from within because you have spontaneous spontaneous potentials expressing itself in the brain instead of evoke potentials, which is way more profound experience for people and self-actualization we could call it we could call it illumination we could call it a thousand words by writers but we all have that capacity and it's not really outside a little bit of work <laughs> people want this lazy man's guide to uh, enlightenment instead of doing the work but the work is worth it because it's fulfilling as you take each step <clears throat> especially when you have that kind of mindset that that alchemizes discomfort and alchemizes that resistance into these perpetual lessons and every person you interact with every person you meet is is an opportunity as a gateway to this deeper understanding of self we have these opportunities where we have resistance we have this this uh, emotional inflammation to what somebody is saying and it's not that they are wrong and that you are right it's that there is something within yourself that is that is being recognized that your conscious perception is not filtering through and it's an opportunity to go hang on what what obstruction exists here what is what is clouding my view um one of my favorite authors anthony DeMello, uh had a quote in his book uh awareness the perils and opportunities of reality 
And it was when the eyes are unobstructed, the result is seeing. When the ears are unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. And, you know, this coincides with all of these ancient philosophies, cultures, mythologies, this process of unlearning these moral constrictions so that we can interact and interface with reality through this deep, direct contact. And you do become a a, a conduit for experience, a conduit for, for love and wisdom and connection, because not only are you more quickly able to recognize the suffering in yourself that you are then projecting onto other people through a blame game, you are able to see that within others too and hold a more conscious, loving space for them to be able to witness themselves in your eyes? Well, love is its own reward. <laughs> and Amela has some great one-liners. He's got some great, you know, you can just take nugget after nugget after nugget as you go through the his simple, simple books, but with lots of depth. And uh, I think, like I said, the magnificence most people don't ever really get a glimpse of. Leibniz, Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, whatever you, how you pronounce it, um, in his Discourse on Metaphysics, talked about uh, what he called, he was had a theological background, he called it the divine perfection. Uh, David Bohm might have called it the implicate order. Many people have different names for it, doesn't matter what it is to me, but those that do have a glimpse of it, their lives are changed forever. I had that glimpse uh, at a young age. And you, you, it's like once the door has been open, you, you can't you can't not walk through the door. And there's there really is a magnificence in our life, a hidden order in our life. And I absolutely love helping people see that, that when they get when you have tears of gratitude for things you thought were crazy innately and, you know, terrible, torturous, you know, traumas and stuff like that, which are all illusions. I, I say that there's nothing the mortal body can experience that the mortal soul can't love. The mortal soul is in a state of unconditional love that occurs in a moment when you're full mindful, you're fully mindful, and you see both sides simultaneous. So Wilhelm Wundt, about 130 years ago, said, that when you have simultaneous contrast and extract out space and time from the mind, the soul reveals its light. But the second you add space and time to the mind and create causality, false causalities from murky causalities, we now have the illusions and we darken our minds with the unconscious. And that that's a sleeping instead of awakening. You know, we, 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 the, the individuals that are in the amygdala are into the debate about being right. The wise path pathway is the dialectic where you're synthesizing the thesis and antithesis and coming to a point where the synthesis is so synchronous that there's no causality left. There's no separation and cause and effect that they're one and the same because it's synchronous. There's no time between them. They're entangled in the now where there's nothing but the photon left out of the, the particle accelerator, the positrons and electrons of emotion. And, and all of a sudden, you now are aware of this entangled state. And I think that Heraclitus said it in the you know, 5th century, 6th century BC almost. He said there's a unity of opposites. And people get trapped in taking a side on the opposites and creating the oppositions. 
and stance and taking yapi stance instead of actually getting in the dance and dancing in the grace of the unity of opposites. And that's, Will Durant said that that's the journey of entire history of civilization. And most people take a side and they can't see both sides simultaneously. So they get, they get stuck in a, a political label or religious label or a, a bias in some form or fashion instead of actually seeing beyond the bias and actually seeing the, the whole and giving ourselves permission to be our authentic self. Cause our real whole self is, I just wrote an article. I just sent it off to jet set magazine a moment ago, just finished it. And uh, on the pessimistic and optimistic biases that we get caught in and how both are necessary synchronously. You know, if you go infatuate with something, you're actually resenting its opposite. So the second you are optimistic about this, you're unconsciously pessimistic about its opposite. <laughs> so the idea of separating the inseparables, dividing the indivisibles, labeling the unlabelables, naming the ineffables, and polarizing the unpolarizables is a delusion of the amygdala's valence assignment, you know, valency. So when we realize that those are just mediated in, in, in a sense, dampened by the executive function when we're living authentically, we realize that we can synthesize these pairs of opposites and not be trapped by either one. Anything we infatuate or resent is going to occupy space and time in our mind. It's going to run us until we actually synthesize it. And then we're free. A moksha liberation story comes at the moment we actually see both sides simultaneously and not get in the illusion that one is good or bad. And the seeing of these complementary opposites and these beautiful contradictions, there's the, you know, the rational gaze of of science and how the specialization into these uh, different disciplines kind of fragments reality, fragments your perception of reality. The biologists say that it's all biology. The physicists say that it's all physics and through a defocalization, like a softening of the gaze, we can kind of allow these truths, these apparent contradictions, we can actually see the the unity of these contradictions and the you know kind of inherent truth that each one speaks, but the the marriage of oneself and the identification and attachment to those ideas creates this posi- positionality in life where you cannot help but be almost you know, in this kind of argument with the world, because you are constantly going to be greeted with information that doesn't necessarily fit within your belief system. And so even the most intelligent people are clouded by these, this rational gaze. Well, because we've been told this is how the world works. This is how things are. This is what you're supposed to do. And no matter how intelligent you might be, how well you can intellectualize your health and your healing and your trauma, it doesn't take away from the necessity of doing the work and how how big a part softening and allowing is in that process and even the suspension of disbelief so that you can enable space for greater clarity to emerge well i like uh, the old statements that handed down from the pre-socratic greeks you know socrates is saying that he was the, they called him the wise man right but he always just acknowledged that the more he knew, the more he didn't know. What he didn't know is far greater, in fact, infinite compared to what he knew, which was an infinitesimal. So the more aware he was, the dumber he became. And of course, he would minimize himself and everybody else would exaggerate him because of that. When I was 18, I, um, well, when I was 17, I had a dream to travel the world and teach. 
And when I was 18, I was watching a little TV series called Kung Fu with David Carradine. And uh, he had this Shaolin master martial artist that was training him. And he would flash back to what the martial artist had te- taught him. And the martial artist called him Grasshopper, and he called the martial artist Master Master. When I, re- I watched that show, I said, I want to be a master. You know, I'm 18 years old. I want to be a master. So I said, okay, what, do, what exactly is a master? And I decided that a master is somebody who could empower all seven areas of their life, because I broke life into seven areas, our spiritual quest for expressing our, our most inspired mission and our immortality path. Then we had our mental path to create original ideas that serve human beings across the planet. Our vocational path, where we actually did a service and a fair exchange to train ourselves in seeing each other as equals. And our financial path to be able to master money so it's not running our lives, but we're mastering it. It's it's growing without having to work. Then there's the family life where there's a, a love and intimacy and learning how to face our personas very quickly. And then there's a social life and you know, hanging out with people that are doing extraordinary things and contributing to something and making history out of life and making a, a, a difference. And then there's the physical, maximizing our physical potential. And and I, I said, I want to master all those. So I wrote out exactly how I wanted to do that. <clears throat> then I said, I want to build a body of knowledge that will stand the test of time. <clears throat> I didn't want to just follow a culture. I want to create a culture. And I want to build a body of knowledge. So I said, okay, how do I do that? So I studied, I wanted to know what is, what's a universal law? What's the most universal law? Because universal laws don't get violated. Human laws do. Human laws can't be followed, <laughs> but universal laws can't not be followed. And the distinction between them is a big, big difference. So I didn't want to build a, a, a model on a human law. I want to build it on a law that nobody could deny. And so I made a list of every known ology that was available in the dictionary and the encyclopedias. And, um, you know, chemistry and mathematics and sciences and all these different geology, astronomy. I made a list of them all. Then I said, I would like to get a Ph.D. in each one of those. And so I'll read at least 100 books. The average Ph.D. was about 100 texts. So I'm going to go and read 100 books in each of these disciplines. It's now 300. And go through and find the most common universal laws out of all of them that's common to all of those disciplines. If I don't see it common to all of them, that's not universal. And that became the basis, the foundation of work that I would build my teachings on. Because it's easy to follow what everybody else says, what sells and all that's popular and all that stuff. But I find most of that fluffy. So I'm interested in something that would stand the test of time and build a foundation. So when I would speak, it would have meaning and it would be something that will sustain and it would be lasting. Seneca says you measure an individual by their most distant ends. And if you are looking for media gratification, your impact will be very low. But if you have a long-term vision for at least a millennia, then you will plan and structure things in such a way that will last and build and momentum, incremental momentum that's unstoppable. And so I, that was my mission to do that. And all the disciplines offer a different language for the same laws. And some of those laws are the laws of complementations of opposites, the conservation of the the build and destroy mechanism that's always conserved. It's always remodeling. People think, well, I want to be good. I don't want to be bad, but you can't build without destroying and you can't be, somebody's going to label you both. So that's why I'm a hero villain. I'm a saint sinner. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a dog cat. <laughs> I'm all the above. I don't, I don't, 
you know, no matter what you say about me, it's true. It's just a matter of what form it's taking. And I, I realize that nothing, if you're going to say that nothing's missing, you're going to have fulfillment, you've got to be able to own it all. All the things that everybody says about you. See, if somebody has a similar value to me, they'll look at me and say, God, he's determined. He's perseverant. He's relentless. But somebody has a different set of value. I mean, God, is he pigheaded? Is he stuck in his rut? And, and he's, you know, unwi- unwilling to, to change. So I'm all that. So somebody's view out there. And so I got to own everything that anybody says and see how it all serves and uses it. Because I'm going to need every one of those personas in different settings to deal to deal with the realities of life. So I, I I love the dance of owning and and reflecting and following the laws that that will stand test of time, and it makes a difference. Then you then you you don't really the human will now matches what the theologians call divine will. You're now matching the laws of the universe. You're not fighting it. You're not having futility. You're having utility. Hmm. And so this mindset of alchemization where you are allowing everything and seeing and, and, and radically embracing the responsibility of those truths as well, because this, none of this can happen without a real willingness to, to embrace it all, to say, yes, okay, I, I see that even these things that I am resistant to, they are truths within me. I cannot be called out for something that I am not, nor can I see anything that is not within me. And so for me to see anything in anybody means that there is inherently some aspect of that within myself. And that is empowering because once realized, we can be conscious about how we relate to that thing. And if we are still living via the the conditioned pattern of relating to that thing, uh, you know, we you know, the fear, the shame, the guilt, the judgment, all of that. You know, what are what are the helpful questions one can utilize to consciously reframe the way they perceive their past, their struggles, their traumas, their anxieties in a way that shows them the strength and resilience that has actually been generated through those experiences rather than them being always this this tender point within the spirit? Well, I always say there's, there's no trauma out there. There's no ecstasy or torture or anything out there. That's all just a, 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 the filter you put on it. As Milton said, you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of heaven. That's that's all just your filter. I asked this question. Uh, what individual, if I start with humans, what individual do I perceive displaying or demonstrating a specific trait, action, or inaction, or behavior that I admire most or despise most? What individual? I take the most extremes if I can, most admired and most despised. Because when you work on the most extremes, the other the rest of the stuff seems trivial. So I go and I take the most heroed or villain individual I can perceive, identify them. Then once I identify them, I ask this question, what specific trait, action, or inaction do I perceive them displaying or demonstrating that I admire most or despise most? And then I define that, and and it can't be hearsay. It can't be broad, vague generalities like they abused me. doesn't tell you anything. They might hit me with their fist. Then it tells me something. So what action is it? It can't be vague generalities. It can't be how you felt because that's how you interpret it, not what they did. And it can't be a transcendental, which transcends the polarities of something you judge. And we define that. Once we define that clearly, then we now go and ask, honestly, 
because we only get our buttons pushed by things we disown in ourselves. That's it. Nobody can push our button unless we disowned it. We're too proud or too humble to admit what we have that we see in them. So then I go and ask, okay, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same specific trait, action, in action that you admired or despised of them. Good. Now, where are you when you're doing it? Pin it down, because an episodic memory in the brain is very isolated on a space and a time and a where and a when and a what and a content and context. So where was it? When was it? Who is it to? And who perceived you doing that? So you're transparent. You're not hiding from it. And you write it down and you do that until the quantity and the quality of what you see in them is, is acknowledged in you to the same degree, and you get a tear in your eye. A tyranny is a confirmation of reflection. And now you've now you're no longer looking down on them and puffing yourself up. You're calming your pride and you're lifting up their your resentment and you're seeing them as they are, or you're calming down your infatuation and you're lifting up your shame and seeing them as they are. And you have reflective awareness. Pure reflective awareness is true intimacy because then you realize that there's no distinction between you and them. The mirror neurons are perfect. At that moment, I go to the next trait. And I go one by one through every trait that I judge in them until there's nothing left except I, I love me and I love them. There's nothing there. And do that for any human being. Now, if you do that on the most powerful people on the planet, you won't minimize yourself to those people because all value systems go from those who have the most power to those of least power. And the only reason they have these definitions is because people own or disown traits. Because at the level of the soul, nothing's missing in you. At the level of the senses, things appear to be missing in you. And those are the things you think you're too proud or too humble to admit you have. So at the moment you actually own those things, you don't subordinate to somebody and you don't superordinate to people. You don't try to futilely try to live in their values. You don't try to futilely try to get them to live in your values. You leave people who they are and you live yourself who you are. And you love them for who you are as a reflection. And in that moment, you have the most sustainable, fair exchange because you respect them. The namaste of of the God in them, the God in you are balanced, you might say. In that moment is maximum potential. And so I do those. I have a series of about 80 questions. Those are just three of them. But I go through those and one by one and hold myself accountable to realize that there was just an illusion on my part. And the, the, the next question is then where I've done this to whoever I've done it to, how did it benefit them? And when I when they did it in the moment they did it, how did it benefit me? Or how is it a drawback to me? Because there are no traits out there that are negative or positive until somebody with a subjective bias interprets them through some morally hypocritical value system. Because if it was really something evil or something like that, it would have gone extinct. But it's here on the planet for thousands of years. It must be serving or it would have gone extinct. So in evolutionary biology, we know that. So, so then the question is, is if we have an interpretation of it somehow not magnificent, it's our job to go and look for the other side that we're denying it's our denial of the magnificence that keeps the magnificence from shining in our own experience. It's our denial of the magnificence that keeps the magnificence from shining in our own experience. Just sitting with that for a moment, because these are profound truths. And you know, what you're describing here is like this, almost a manual homeostatic mechanism through which exactly. you work to develop and cultivate the 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 equanimity that does exist, the equanimity that is present beyond present. the chaos that you are seeing. Yeah, exactly. You nailed it perfectly. That was the article that I just sent in about that our physiology, 
what I did is I took physiology down to the quantum level. I mean, I took gross anatomy and I took anatomy. I went into the histology. I went to the cells and cell biology and I went down to the, you know, the molecular organic chemistry and the biochemistry and now down to the nuclear chemistry and the nuclear reactions and all the way down and down to the quantum level. I, I broke it all the way down into like went down to literally virtual particles and virtual photons. And it's a magnificent journey going down into this thing and this reduction is or as you take it with emergent. But either way, the more you probe into it, the more magnificent it becomes and the more you realize that there is a field of intelligence <laughs> that's there. You know, no, no, no Nobel Prize winner. I've studied all the Nobel Prize winners. And if you go and study the Nobel Prize winners, you'll see that some of them spent 20, 30, 40 or 50 or 60 years pursuing something. And they would not have pursued that if they didn't have a belief that there was some sort of inherent intelligent order in the universe, not just pure random chaos, because otherwise it could not be science. And there's, there's repeating patterns there. So, so the pursuit of that is innate within us. It's an innate calling inside us to recognize. And if we don't see it as it is, we'll make up our own artificial explicate order idea about it. Just like if we don't see the real divinity, we'll make up our own anthropomorphic deities in order to, to compensate the false gods until we're ready for the true divine primitives, panpsychic intelligence that's ever present that is in everything, no matter what we're experiencing. And it's our our calling inside to awaken to that magnificence, no matter what we're experiencing with any sense. And I always say that we have an infinite variety of experiences of magnificent love at all scales of existence. Um for eternity. <laughs> so we got a great, we got a, a pretty good deal going for us, but we don't take the time to ask the quality questions predominantly because the questions are not put on the mass conscious level. Most of the time, the masses are wanting the immediate gratification and they're wanting the, the opium of the masses for a quick fix instead of actually the pursuit of something that's deeply meaningful. And, and Nietzsche and many others, um, all said that, you know, the meaning we give it is what we give it. But at the same time, if uh, life not searching for meaning or not pursuing meaning, the mean between excess and deficiencies, Aristotle said, is an unfulfilled life. The hedonistic pursuit is immediate gratification doesn't have anything that's sustainable. So I, I'm not a stoic, but I can appreciate some of the stoicism that's inherent in the universe to try to help us appreciate the pairs of opposites of life. Because we have them all. Nothing's missing. And no matter what you can perceive, I just spent yesterday, the day before, the day before taking students, a group of students, and have them take the most polarized perceptions they've ever experienced. So some ecstatic or traumatic and go into the moment and, and go because in the moment of perception is when the conscious and unconscious mind split, when the subjectiveness of the intrinsic uh, the association sitting in the central nervous system start to judge. And in that moment, I asked them to go and identify the submodality distinctions of all the senses that they're experiencing in that moment. So the sights, the smells, the tastes, everything else, and log them. And then we go in and one by one, isolated, we find out where our mind intuitively brought in the other as an anti-memory to counterbalance that, to bring homeostasis and the physiology to change and balance the electronics, the neurotransmitter ratios, to everything brought back into it, and how our mind spontaneously does that instantaneously in order to maintain stability in any perturbed environment that we're perceiving. And what we did is we went through them, and they were not to stop until they had tears of gratitude for each one of those moments. And some of them did 300, some did 250, 
somewhere between 250 and 300 in three days of moments, and they just were speechless. They realized that at every moment of any perception, the pairs of ops are there, and we've overlooked it, then restored that with valency in our hippocampus, and then believed in that subconscious belief system that got reinforced by tradition, conventions, mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, and everything else, and trapped us into this elusive state instead of actually acknowledging the magnificence that was there. And I just gave them an exercise and helped them see the magnificence moment by moment. And we went through a stream of consciousness and we we broke it down into smaller subsets of time and showed that in each moment, no matter what the perception is, the pair of opposites are always there. And then you actually realize that, so how is that coordinated? Is that coordinated from within? And it, you didn't know about it consciously. It must be something beyond that. And it's in every experience. And it's in every one of the social events that we have. And it's going on at all scales. So that's almost a, an awakening to a field of intelligence is primitive. And these questions, they draw you out of the default mode of processing information. And that is so critical, you know, paired with, you know, lifting out of that default mode network, being exposed to new information or the same, same information that was there, but from the different perspective and what we see is how it's seen. And then paired with the emotional correlate of that tier of gratitude creates that new connection of meaning. And we are threading this more fulfilling and purposeful way of perceiving and being our reality than just maintaining these stories that have been generated and maintained and then confirmed over time. It's creating these new stories. It's seeing that there was that, you know, that the, the other side of the coin of the story of that significant moment in life that maybe once flipped and perceived from a different perspective, what it is in its entirety changes. Paul Dirac said, it's not that we don't know so much, it's that we know so much that isn't so. We're trapped in the illusions. You know, when you're in kindergarten, or no, first grade to sixth grade, elementary school, primary school, you go into a science class and you see in the front of the class a little hydrogen atom, then a helium atom, then a lithium atom, then a beryllium atom, then a boron, carbon, nitrogen, go up to that iron, all the way up to uranium. And each one looks like a little bit bigger ball. And then you see in a little box, you see these little blue, red, and white uh, sticks and balls, and you think, oh, atoms are little balls, little spheres. And so in elementary school, you swear an atom's a little ball. Then you go on to high school, you know, or junior high, high, or whatever, your middle school, regular high school, and you realize, no, 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 that's not exactly it. That was a model. It's actually a Bohr model. It's like it's a little solar system looking thing with electrons go around it, protons, neutrons in the center, and it's it's just these little orbitals. And you go, oh, that's what it was. It wasn't exactly that, and it, but it's a shell, so it's sort of like a sphere, but it's it's a little higher level of abstraction. Then you go on to college and you go, oh, crap. Now I'm getting st- talked about quantum numbers, orbital spins, right? Azimuth number and things. And you get all these, these quantum numbers. And then you find out that it's probability distributions based on complex mathematics with square roots of negative one by Giordano Cardano, that's, that Schrodinger, who believed in one mind and only one mind, the rest of it was just an illusion, concocted in order to explain these phenomenon of the virtual world of the complex mathematics, which allow the square root of negative one to give us both po- positrons and electrons, all pairs of opposites. So all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute now, what we were taught in elementary school wasn't true. What we were taught in high school wasn't true. Now we're at quantum numbers. 
And that's something we can't wrap our head around because we can't see it in three dimensions. It's more abstract. It's a mathematical abstraction. Then you go on to get your doctorate degree. And then you find out, well, the point electron probability distribution is an infinitesimal, which has to be renormalized in order to be able to be real. And now you've got an even more mathematical abstraction, and you realize that it's not exactly that either. That's got little bits of glitches in it. And then you go on to get your PhD in Professor Emeritus, and you're working on the most abstract things. And then you realize, we don't really freaking know. We now realize that at the uncertainty principle of Eisenberg, the proton is actually emerging from mesons and quarks and gluons, and, and, and it's just a field of interacting systems there that's just a probability distribution. Then we realize, man, it's just a mind screw. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, you know, an unstable thing there. We don't know what the hell it is. And the farther we go, all the way down to Planck, we realize it's virtual particles and virtual you know, photons that are merging and submerging constantly in this ether, the original ether that they used to talk about at Planck's level. And, and then we could go further. Is there something even beyond that? Is there some super Planckian state? And, and th these, are, these are things that we have to grasp. And so we have to be taught the illusion to the ready for truth, as the Buddha says. And so each of us are ready to take on different levels of abstraction. And our level of IQ, EQ is going to be based on the level of abstractions we can manage and, and, and use in our brain, you know, with our, our mind. And if we can do that, when we can probe deeper into the mysteries of existence. Wow. So level of abstraction paired with almost functional utility as well, you know, and, and, and reaching these levels of abstraction at what, it, you know, at what point does the, at what point does the researcher wrestle with faith? Because what they're presented with almost requires an aspect of belief in order to see what could be there. Well, the people that have been, um, against philosophy, you know, the scientists today, they say, well, we started out with animistic mysticism. We went to mythology. We went to, you know, metaphysics. Then we went to philosophy and then we went to science. And then we end up going, well, can we really get past science without going to a little bit of philosophy? And then we realize that every time we know something, the history, there's always a mystery outside what we know. And the mystery is always going to require a little bit of the, the speculation again. And, and the willingness to live at the border of those two, maximum growth and development occurs at the border of those two and all pairs of opposites. So I don't think that it's ever done. I always say it's wise to live with holy curiosity and give yourself permission to continue to keep being humble the next day. Because, you know, when you see somebody thinks, I'm only enlightened, I go, oh, yeah, you, you're enlightened to the degree that you are aware. And that's all you don't know. So I, I'm leery about putting a finite on an infinite, and I'd rather live with the holy curiosity of the infinite and continue to grow and learn tomorrow and the next day and, and allow people to keep standing on shoulders of shoulders of shoulders of shoulders through time. John, thank you so much. Um, this is a brilliant conversation. I am thoroughly stimulated and, and wonderfully confused, which I think is always a great way of adding context to this experience. Um, whenever we are greeted with information that fractures a little bit more of our worldview, that is in itself a gateway of expansion. And I'm only ever enlightened to the degree of which I am aware. And that's a never ending that's process. It. That's it. No ending. I, I, uh, may I have humble, as I say, humbleness to divinity brings certainty to humanity <laughs> and divinity just means the diva, which means the light within. It's not an anthropomorphic deity out there. It's not even a form. It's the ideal forms of Plato, the nominal world by Kant. 
Oh, there's so many one-liners to go back through and listen to this. I uh, I really do. Thank you for your time. And John, where can people find your work? Um, all you got to do is go look my name up, probably. If you look my name up and just go to the website, drdmartini.com or the Demartini Show or something, and you'll you'll you you can figure me out. I'm not I'm not too hard to find on there. I I uh, I try to get, you know. I just I love researching, writing, traveling, and teaching. So that's all. That's I'm useless outside that. That's all I can do. I, I'm useless. I I haven't driven a car in 33 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I, I I have somebody that does everything other than teach, research, write, and travel. And that's it. That's all I do. That's admirable. And I hope to also one day be that aligned with my dharma and purpose so that I can delegate that which I am not called to be doing. Well, if we don't if we don't delegate lower priority things, uh, we'll devalue ourselves. And when we devour ourselves, so does the world. I would say if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it fills up with low priority distractions that don't. The distractions that don't are there to kick your butt to try to get you back onto what your authentic pathway is. Oh, there's a lesson for distraction as well. Yes. Oh, you've given me much to think about, and I'm sure the listeners as well. Uh, we will come together and discuss this later, my friends. Anybody who is listening to this that wants to dive deeper into this discussion, um, you can visit us in the This Might Be Helpful community. The link is in the description below, as are the links to all of John's um, research and, and discussions and works. They are on his website, his YouTube channel, and you have the Dr. John Demartini show as well. I'll have the links to all of that below. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share it with your mother. I'm sure she would love it too.